Hello, and welcome to Regrets I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told by an Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Hello, uh, and welcome. Um, my guest this month is an eminent British neuroscientist who I first met uh, a few years ago now when Told by an Idiot were conducting an experiment called the Falling Down Project, why we still laugh when people hurt themselves. And we wanted some scientific input into this little experiment. And this person brilliantly joined us and was so fantastically insightful about why we laugh, how we laugh, when we laugh, um, that we grabbed her and nabbed her as a regular idiot. Um, it's the wonderful Sophie Scott. Sophie, welcome. Oh, lovely to see you, Paul, and thank you for this. Thank you. No, I, I have to ask, I hope I've got this correct. Amongst the many things you do, am I right in saying that you are the director of UCL's Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience? I am. I am the, um, the director of this institute, which is a very interdisciplinary institute. Uh, what kind of uh, coheres us all together is we're interested in how the brain works and at a level where you can kind of relate that to behaviour. Because neuroscience is a world of stuff. There's all, you know, there's molecules and bits of cells. And we're sort of at the level of the, the whole brain and the whole person. This is kind of where we're interested in making maps. That is a brilliant, because that was my first question. And you've answered it perfectly. Thank you for, uh, for mostly for me, because I've probably asked it before. And it's good for me to get that back in my brain. Um, but uh, we've had lots of chats uh, in lots of lovely places, like regular visits to the zoo. And one thing we often return to is obviously the subject of laughter, because it's close to your heart and it's close to mine. Um, uh, I, and we'll touch on it quite a bit, I imagine, amongst other things. But I wonder if I could take you right back to, I think, Blackburn. Is that right, where you yes, were born? Yes, I'm from Blackburn. Yeah. Um, do you, when you think of Blackburn and that part of the north of England, do you kind of feel there's a very particular sense of humour that connects to that place? I mean, I, I probably everybody thinks this about where they come from, but there is a particular style of sort of quite mordant Lancastrian humour that <laughs> seems to completely sit with a Lancashire accent. Um, probably the best example I can think of is a few years ago, um, I took my son up up to the northwest for a holiday and we went to Blackburn and we went up on a walk up to Darwin Tower. Darwin is just next to Blackburn and there's a big old Victorian tower at the top of this moor and you can walk up and then you walk back down. Did it a lot when I was a kid. Walking up with Hector, getting up to the top of the tower and, um, and they were actually doing work on the tower and these um, men were going around with lots of, you know, sort of planks and things and Hector was finding it very, very funny to spend the entire holiday pretending we were in Yorkshire, not in Lancashire, because he knew this irritated me slightly. And he looked at all this work and he went, oh, when will Yorkshire ever be finished? And one of the guys with all these planks just went, happen we'll finish perfecting Lancashire first and we'll move on to Yorkshire later. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> perfecting works yes, so beautifully in that, in the, in the, exactly. And do you have, um, do you have a kind of early memory of when you first kind of saw something funny, whether it was a film or, or pantomime or what's your early memories of comedy? Probably, if I'm honest, it would be my father coming and getting me and making me watch Laurel and Hardy films with him because they used to still be on television quite a lot then, like in the mornings on a Saturday and things. And um, 
he really loved Laurel and Hardy and he didn't want to watch it on his own. He wanted to share it. And I, I can recognize that now as a parent. It's something I like, I do as well. So it would probably be something like that. There were also quite big, um, that there was a, my father was a big comedy fan so he used to quite often go off to Blackpool to see big acts and I never ever got to see any of them I remember him going to see Morecambe and Wise and I was beside wow. myself with anger I was so cross I wasn't allowed to go um but in Blackburn there would be a big charity gig every year and there would be someone like Ken Dodd would come and do that and I was going to those from quite a young age as well um so it was a sort of a thing a com comedy was a thing it's sort of that was possibly because my father was such a big comedy fan, but it was seemed to be, you know, it was a notable part of the culture. I can, I can so relate to that. I think we often, those memories or shared things with a parent stay with you, don't they? And then, as you say, if you get the chance, it's brilliant. I remember taking my son Dexter to watch Lauren Hardy at the cinema when he was about seven. And the thing that he was particularly fascinated by, and we will touch on this later as well, but he was fascinated, I think, by the comedy of violence in the films because it's quite violent and he couldn't quite believe it that Stan and Ollie and this woman were booting each other at the backside. <laughs> he thought it was hysterical. And you forget, in a way, how quite how violent the, those movies are. You do, you do. It's, I, with, I did something similar when Hector was quite small and I started uh, showing him that we've got a big box set of, uh, my partner bought me a big box set of all the um, DVDs for Lauren and Hardy. So we were watching it at home. I know oh, they, they do keep, that. That, was, that wasn't CGI. That was uh, <laughs> two men and a donkey running down some stairs and falling off the stairs. That, that was happening. <laughs> <laughs> that was real. Now, so your dad was obviously a, a comedy buff, which is brilliant. Um, what about a first glimpse into the world of science is that in your background or your family or anything not at all so um most of the people in my family like immediate family were people involved in the carpet trade one way or the other both my mum's and my dad's side um and beyond that my grandfather was a my dad's dad was a singer um and my great-grandfather worked in carpets go back to carpets so wherever you look <laughs> the little, little <laughs> exceptions of someone doing something else he's wild singer but then it, it, was, it was pretty much all carpets so um not not nothing whatsoever and I think uh, they sound very cheesy but I can remember watching the Royal Institution Christmas lectures in 2000 no 1977 I would have been about 11 and yeah I would have been 11 and Carl Sagan did them and he was just so good it was fantastic it was all about just the planets which sounds like just the planets like oh that's not big science but he absolutely brought it alive and he had data coming in from there was a there was probes that had been sort of set off earlier that year and he was showing us data that was coming back from these probes and it was just spectacular I, I, that absolutely got me like a I want I wanted to do that I wanted to be in science and of course I ended up in a completely different part of science. In fact, one of the rare times I really made a physics teacher laugh was when I said to my physics teacher, I was thinking of studying astrophysics at university. And she just sort of spat in my face. Her, so abrupt and enormous was her laughter. I was not a gifted physicist. But um, it was something about that. He, he kind of, he, he told you a lot about the planets, but he also kind of, let, he really brought alive what science can let you do. How you can, you know, just you can sort of the science is a way of finding out about the world. He had a very natural way of communicating that and a real skill in communicating that. And I think that's what I was I was getting as as much 
that is the message as there was anything about the planets. In fact, I'm famously, famously, I'm very, very bad at planetary science. I, don't, I can't even remember the names of all the planets and where they are. I, I clearly picked up none of that from him. That's a, you know, again, something that can have a big effect, you know, performatively speaking, in a sense, that sense of performing something, which he was in, in a way, I suppose, in that lecture, is as much about the charisma or the mm. way he's, communicating something isn't it it's I'm very intrigued by that sometimes it's definitely as well as the material it's how someone delivers it definitely so there's a I don't think we do um we give enough credit to this in science because we kind of imagine that it's just the the framework of facts is all you need but you actually um a great talk a great presentation is so much more likely to get people to take your science seriously because it is the, the performance really matters no it's true so when you Obviously, you probably just started secondary school and when, when you had this amazing moment of seeing the lecture. Did that kind of push you at school in, into a passion for the science subjects, even though physics obviously wasn't your strength? But. <laughs> <laughs> it did. I, I, was, I was quite good at, well, no, I was good at biology um, and not bad at chemistry. And I got, I got by in physics. Um, and it, it did. I was already, in retrospect, I was already quite interested in biology. I've got a... My mum, you know, like mums can sometimes save things you did at school. My mum <laughs> saved this project I did when I was about eight called the Sycamore. And I've really <laughs> gone to town on this. I've written like trees, 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 trees. <laughs> and then oak, ash, birch, oak, ash, birch. And then that Sycamore, big star of the show. So, you know, I had a, I had a taste for the world of, of biology from an early age. But I think, I think it rewarded me in that I was good at it. I liked doing it and I was you know I got rewards at school I was I was I was good at doing uh, sciences in general particularly biology so um it was a it was a became one of those virtuous circles you know your interest is rewarded by rewards at school and that kind of continues firing your interest it's it was a it was a happy happy circumstance for me and then how did that kind of manifest itself the journey beyond that into I assume higher education and what you were then how you're going to take it further well I didn't really know what to do I mean Carl Sagan was very good about doing science but I didn't really know what you then turned that into and I can see here where if you had a parent who knew about that world probably I would have made different decisions um neither of my parents had been to university my dad was the generation he'd left school at 14 you know yeah, my, yeah, my same father here. Could, yeah, yeah and um yeah. it's it was completely it was like, he was very very keen that we went to university but had no real interest whatsoever beyond that. And I, not fair he would have liked me to be a barrister so let's put that to one side he would have liked that that okay that never happening right um so I thought that uh, medicine was what you did if you were good at science um so I kind of and and I was I wanted to be seen as good at science I wanted to shine you know so that seems okay well I'm going to do medicine because that's what girls who are good at science aim for um and I got some way into my A-levels and I thought I do not want to do this at all I don't want to do medicine and I do you know what I think this is a moment of true self-reflection on my part I think I was right I think I would have been a dreadful medical doctor um so I was like oh and I don't well if not it's not that then what and I was a bit kind of at sea and I applied for and got onto a biology course um, at Goldsmiths because I got a, you know, I'm still reasonably good at biology. I thought, well, let's try that. And on this biology course, I, we'd had a course on animal behaviour, which I'd never, ever studied before. And I remember just thinking, this is amazing. You know, if you can learn all this about 
behavior of geese around their eggs what could this tell it what what does this mean for humans you know what could you know about humans and I discovered there was a, a sort of field of study called psychology so I tried to change onto psychology at Goldsmiths and they were like no you're not very good you know you're not good enough for us so um I went away and I worked for a while I saw kilts uh on Southampton Row and I applied to other places to study psychology and I got accepted at what was then the Polytechnic of Central London and I started there and I was so happy because I was getting a chance to do you know study something that really really caught my interest and even then I didn't really know what I could do with that and one of my lecturers at the end of my second year said oh you know you should think about doing a PhD I was well fine then I'll do that sounds like a great idea so um I started applying for PhD places and genuine serendipity um, got accepted onto one immediately at UCL. So I went straight from my first degree onto my PhD, which I think just doesn't happen now. You, that route doesn't yeah. really exist. You, you have to go and do further work, you do masters and things like that. Oh, interesting. And I, I, I have to pick up, it was something I was going to ask shortly, but you've drawn my attention to it when you talked about the, the, the study of animal behavior. And as I said, I, I think of many happy days our family spent together at the zoo and I think I've learned quite a lot from animals from you actually wandering around the zoo but we may have touched on this before but in terms of laughter which I'm going to come back to is there animals that in any way laugh similarly to us or in similar circumstances or in similar expression of laughter yes and no so some laughter uh, that we produce particularly laughter that we produce when they're babies is in response to very kind of simple physical things like tickling. And there are some caveats to that, which I'll come back to, but actually that's exactly the same thing that first triggers laughter in other apes. So chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans, they first laugh when they're tickled by an adult they're close to. The same is true for rats as well. So there is something, uh, there's something interesting about the relationship between tickling and the first appearance of laughter that probably is much more widespread across mammals that may just be a a, a a commonality that we've yet to understand more about but that's so there's a very broad similarity about tickling um, there are of course other things that will make human babies laugh that don't work on other animals so playing peekaboo making silly noises tearing up bits of paper things like that will make human babies laugh not all of them lawfully but you know tickling tends to work on everybody but that they human babies seem to be able to cope with something a little bit more abstract right from the outset and then as we get older laughter is associated with play and that's true for humans and it's true for other apes and it's true for other animals where it's found like particularly rats laugh when they're what make a rat rat laughter vocalization when they're playing um and then in adulthood um humans sort of have two different kinds of laugh very 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 crudely we have that really sort of spontaneous helpless laughter and we have laughter that we use more communicatively and chimpanzees do laugh differently when they are tickled than if they're trying to make play last longer which looks like it might be something similar to humans there but there is one huge difference in addition to the peekaboo thing that is different about humans and other apes which is we laugh contagiously. So very often when we laugh, it's happening purely because somebody else is laughing. Now, contagious behaviors, things like yawning, scratching, blinking, they're relatively common in nature. 
and they're relatively common in mammals. So um, not even just mammals, actually. I was reading a paper yesterday that yawning, your contagious yawning is found in many mammals, even being found in birds, you know, so kind wow. of catching a yawn from a common specific, another member of your species is very common. It's always much more likely to happen if it's, if it's another member of your species that you know, so there's some familiarity there and that's true for us as well. But no, so yawning is the really big example here in contagious behaviors. Laughter, very contagious for humans, does not work that way in other animals. So although chimpanzees laugh very like us, they do not laugh contagiously. And this has been shown very nicely by a researcher at uh, Portsmouth University called Marina de Villaros. And she's shown that um, chimpanzees, they laugh when they're playing, but playing for chimpanzees is very physical. You're interacting with each other physically. Two chimpanzees can be laughing and playing together. A third chimpanzee can be sitting right next to them and they don't laugh at all. They just, it doesn't jump the gap to them. Whereas there's something about humans and laughter where laughter can jump that gap. You don't need that physical contact. That's maybe the same as the, the kind of peekaboo example. We can deal with a sort of an abstraction for laughter, which for all other animals where you find it, it's very, very bound up in a, a sort of an intimate physical interaction as well as the production of the sound. And I think that's probably very important difference. I suspect that one of the things that might be very different about humans is this is this ability to catch laughter. Maybe that's got a very important functional for the use of laughter. And the final thing that's different for um, for human laughter is that human laughter can be driven by things even more abstract. So they can be driven by things that you've seen or heard that don't have to be someone laughing. So I'm talking about comedy. Yes. And no one has found an example of another animal reacting to a thing in the world with laughter unless that thing is actual physical play or tickling so chimpanzees laugh a lot but they don't laugh when something happens that is really fascinating that it's is incredible really isn't fascinating it? because i sometimes think infectious laughter i.e when we pick up on like you say on someone else is it has the my memory of it if i think about school days it has the combination often of being brilliant and painful at the same time or, or laughing as an actor on stage you know corpsing when you're not supposed to is a terrible terrible thing because mm. you can't control yourself and yet you're trying to control yourself um still for me one of the funniest examples of laughter is those two cricket commentators who who can't stop and we hear that so many people choose that clip on desert island distals because it's completely infectious isn't yes. it it really is. And I think one of the things that's um, infectious about it is that it's it's very authentic laughter. Yes. Yeah, they are they're really not, laughing. Yeah, they're really laughing and they're desperately trying to stop. <laughs> and that makes it very truthful. Yes. You know, and and I think also if they really hated each other, they wouldn't have been laughing like that. So you're picking up something yeah. about, you know, we don't laugh like that randomly. No. You laugh with particular people in particular circumstances. So although apparently it was the first, it was the first time Jonathan Agnew had actually done that report. Oh, really? He'd been, it was, when it had been brought in. There's quite a good, there's a good BBC Sounds um, documentary about oh, it. I'll, I'll send uh, you the yes, link. Yes, please. I'd like to listen to that, yeah. yeah. And if you listen to the whole programme, someone did once send me a copy of the whole programme and actually they, they're quite giggly all the way through, but it's the other way around. It's, it's Brian Johnson, the more senior man, the man he's ah, trying to make Jonathan Agnew laugh. Okay. 
And when the, the famous clip is, of course, when Jonathan Agnew makes a joke that then makes him laugh and then completely sets off Brian Johnson. And then they just bounce the laughter back and forth at each other. It's why he keeps saying, oh, do, do stop it, yeah, Agnew, yeah, yeah. stop it. Because if you stop, I'll be able to stop. And they do. They are desperately trying to stop. No, that's fair. And often I think um, as a performer, I, I, I often think there are laughs that audiences do that sometimes I question the authenticity of. So by that, I mean, you know, you might be at a Shakespeare play and there's a kind of knowing laugh that says, I recognise what this reference is. Or, and, and I often think in that case, I think, I don't think you laugh like that in the pub with your mates. If someone said you'd have a different way of laughing. So I suppose, mm. it, again, there's, it, it's like anything. If, when it's authentic, it's really, it really comes from somewhere, I suppose. Yes, I think that's it. And the, the kind of world of communicative laughter, it covers all sorts of things. People might be laughing to show, well, I understand that this is supposed to be funny. Um, you probably wouldn't understand that at all. You know? <laughs> um, or people might, you know, people laugh to cover up emotional states. Yeah. People laugh to get other people to do things for them. So my brother used to work in journalism, trade journalism, and he had a colleague who was always getting stories that, who were much better than his. So he paid a lot of attention to her and what she did she laughed a huge amount and people would tell her all sorts of things and in fact this has been shown scientifically people will t if you get them laughing they will share more intimate information with you they feel safer with you that's interesting now of course we're kind of at that stage when you're at university and i know you take the laughter very seriously so seriously that you've actually done some stand-up have you not yes, I have. <laughs> how did that start <laughs> well it started because UCL, my university, um, it got a public engagement unit in the sort of late noughties because one of the problems UCL has is we're a very big university. We very important, you know, we have a very international profile, but actually in London, we're kind of invisible. People have heard of the hospital, but if I say to my downstairs neighbours, oh, I work at the university, they'll think I mean, um, you know, Imperial or King's College or, you know, the fact that there's a university right down the, just down the road from us, but we won't necessarily be as visible to them so they were trying to do this public engagement and one of the things they were trying to do is raise the visibility of UCL in London so they started doing these stand-up comedy nights as a way of sort of you know kind of getting skills for the academics who were performing so all the performers with the exception of the MC and the headliner would be academics and students um, and when I first heard about this, I was like, that sounds awful. You know, I just come back from maternity <laughs> leave and I thought, why would you put yourself through that? You know, I've worked really hard to get here. I don't want to, you know, piss it all away in a pub of strangers staring at me in horror, not laughing. And, and I was quite happy with that. And then I met a male colleague. This is not a story that reflects well on me. I met a, a male colleague about my seniority who was saying, oh, have you done these comedy nights? And I was like, no way. And he said, I did it. It was brilliant. You know, I went really well and everyone thought I was great. And everyone <laughs> laughed a lot. I'm exaggerating slightly. And I thought, you bastards, you haven't even asked me. You've asked him and he had a brilliant evening, you know. And so I was like, I'll totally do that. And then the next thing, I was locked in a pub toilet just thinking, what have I done? What was I thinking? You know, I was so scared. Um, I thought we can just start my new life living in a toilet. That'll be how it is. And then when I did it and they did get some laughs and at the end, the you know, the MC comes on and goes, ladies and gentlemen, Sophie, and everybody's clapping. And I was like, oh, people can do this for as long as they want to. This is rather nice. But my main conscious thought afterwards was I want to do that again and I want to do it better. Um, because I could think of everything I'd done wrong and, and then other ways I could have done it. And, you know, because stand up comedy is one of those 
arts where you you know in the moment if it's working or not because people are either laughing or they're not but also um oh, that's true of all comedy but also stand-up comedy you you only really know if the material works if you do it in front of an audience you can't rehearse it I mean, there must be lots of other comparisons with comedy here that, that you do but it's you know you don't really know how audiences will react until you're there trying it out in front of an audience so I have one routine about being a scientist which starts with like a joke based on that you know the Blade Runner thing I um I've seen things you humans wouldn't believe and there, there are three examples of things that have actually happened in the laboratory when I've been testing humans so one there's one of them is someone getting bottom first into a brain scanner someone getting to the end of experiments and then when she was being debriefed said I've been conducting my own experiment and someone who so hated being in the experiment they climbed out of a window and ran away leaving behind their coat and their shopping and I thought that was the funny order start with the bottom of the brain scanner then I've been conducting my own experiment and then jumping out of the window and running away and just doing it in front of an audience has taught me that that's not the funny order the funny order is to go climbing out of the window bottom in brain scanner and finish with i've been conducting my own experiment which i thought was the least funny one so isn't that but yeah. isn't that 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 touches on so many things close to my heart and experience that as a performer you can create something and you only really know in front of an audience i i totally agree now obviously stand up it that's the, it's one of know, those the, areas the, but the areas but it's it is fascinating now this is a silly question to ask because i'm sure you don't but there's no tinge of regret that you didn't pack up science for the world of variety and the music <laughs> hall no <laughs> well no i don't think anybody's fooled you know <laughs> people know that i'm a Professor from UCL, that's not, that's, I would not. Well, I mean, Harry Hill, not, Harry Hill is a good example, doctor turned comedian. I think the only thing, if it was a regret, I would say I wish I'd done it much, much earlier. Mm. And it would have been hard and there wouldn't have been a route. I, you know, if I had it easy because I had experience of standing up and giving talks. So academics are used to everybody shutting up and then making a noise, you know, which is already stressful for most people. And also I had this routine you know there's the these gigs were being organized at my workplace we would be they were looking for us to do it so if you take yourself off to do comedy without either of those things you have a lot more to learn and also you don't have an automatic into a gig people still do it of course but i i do wish i'd tried it earlier because i think um it, it just it, it's i'd be better now if i'd started earlier <laughs> and, and also um, I don't think I would have done anything else. I, I love being a scientist. I adore being a scientist, but it sort of gives you a set of skills that are very, very transferable and very useful for all sorts of other aspects of your, you know, kind of working life. It is very useful to have comedy as a tool you can fall back on when things go wrong. Yeah. It's very useful to put yourself through something you are absolutely dreading because you do sort of think, and my partner who's done is another scientist and has also done this. He said, I feel like I could do, I could do anything now. Yeah. And there is yeah. an element of that. In fact, I, whenever it's possible, I get my students and my postdocs to do this because it's like a it's an immersive experience and engagement that you are not going to there's going to skill you up as you do it. And there's nothing else quite like it for that. No, that is, I'm, absolutely. I've only done it really once and it's both terrifying and, and exhilarating at the same time. But obviously you're hugely in demand, you know, to, to, to talk or be on TV or radio. Do you feel that's informed when you go into those more media type positions where you're having to talk or not really? It's a good question. I think because, you know, again, when I'm doing anything on the media, it's I'm doing it as a scientist. Yes, I'm not of a talking mm-hmm. head, you know, so um, I think 
one of the things that it gave me was uh, a, a sense of confidence in being able to think, well, like, this is what I know. And how can I best talk about this, yeah. make this accessible? Because you have to do that for a stand-up comedy. I mean, so my stand-up comedy is always based around science. I don't, I don't tell jokes. I'm doing stuff around the, you know, I'll, I'll take a, the science of disgust, say, and turn that into a comedy routine. Although I have to say that was a difficult one. I tend to overdo it with the disgust and upset the audience. Um, and that kind of that kind of level of being able to talk about science in an accessible way, it definitely helps with that. That's a very transferable skill. And then that's very useful when you're talking on, you know, I did something, they were looking for people to talk about communication and the Facebook crash of, of the day before um, on the radio yesterday. And I was quite comfortable to do that because I know the scientific background, but I'm also fairly confident I can express that in a way that's meaningful, but also not misrepresenting the science. Brilliant. Sophie, I, uh, just before we finish, I'm going to ask you eight questions to which I would like you to answer the first thing in response to these questions. Here we go. Uh, Morecambe or Wise or Tommy Cooper? Morecambe and Wise. Sorry. Sorry, Tommy. Uh, Penguin or Meerkat? Meerkat. Dracula or Frankenstein? Dracula. Blackpool or Margate? Blackpool. Boxing Day or Halloween? Halloween. Blue or green? Blue. Punchline or Shaggy Dog Story? Oh, I do love a Shaggy Dog Story. I can't lie. Very good. Nobel Prize or Oscar? Well, this, I have to say, probably Nobel Prize. <laughs> so I'm much further from the Oscar. I'm, I'm close to neither. But... <laughs> Sophie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll see you very soon. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed this idiot podcast, please spread the word.